0: Story five of Buttered Side Down. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Madeira. Buttered Side Down by Edna Ferber. Story five The Kitchen Side of the Door. The city was celebrating New Year's Eve. Spelled thus, with a capital C, no, it can mean but New York. In the pink fountain room of the newest hotel all those grand old forms and customs handed down to us for the occasion were being rigidly observed in all their original quaintness the van Dyke man who looked like a russian grand duke he really was a had drunk champagne out of the pink satin slipper of the lady who behaved like an actress she was forelady at schmouse's wholesale millinery eighth floor the two respectable married ladies there in the corner had been kissed by each other's husbands the slim puritan-faced woman in white with her black hair so demurely parted and coiled in a sleek knot had risen suddenly from her place and walked indolently to the edge of the plashing pink fountain in the centre of the room had stood contemplating its shallows with a dreamy half-smile on her lips and then had lifted her slim legs slowly and gracefully over its fern-fringed basin and had waded into its chilling midst, trailing her exquisite white satin and chiffon draperies after her and scaring the goldfish into fits the loudest scream of approbation had come from the yellow-haired loose-lipped youth who had made the wager and lost it The heavy blonde and the inevitable violet drapery showed signs of wanting to dance on the table. Her companion, a structure made up of layer upon layer and fold upon fold of flabby tissue, knew all the waiters by their right names, and insisted on singing with the orchestra and beating time with a rye roll. The clatter of dishes was giving way to the clink of glasses. In the big, bright kitchen-back of the pink fountain-room, Miss Gussie Fink sat at her desk, calm, watchful, insolent-eyed. A goddess sitting in judgment. On the payroll of the newest hotel, Miss Gussie Fink's name appeared as kitchen-checker, but her regular job was goddessing. Her altar was a high desk in a corner of the busy kitchen, and it was an altar of incense, of burnt offerings, and of showbread. Inexorable as a goddess of the ancients was Miss Fink, and ten times as difficult to appease, for this is the rule of the newest hotel. That no waiter may carry his laden tray restaurantward Until its contents have been viewed and duly checked By the eye and hand of Miss Gussie Fink, or her assistants. Flat upon the table must go every tray, Off must go each silver dish-cover, Lifted must be each napkin to disclose its treasure Of steaming corn or hot rolls. Clouds of incense rose before Miss Gussie Fink, And she sniffed it unmoved her eyes beneath level brows regarding savoury broiler or cunning ice with equal indifference appraising alike lobster cocktail or onion soup travelling from blue points to brie things a la and things glace were all one to her gazing at food was miss gussie fink's occupation and just to see the way she regarded a boneless squab made you certain that she never ate in spite of the i-don't-know-how-many c ads, new year's eve diners for whom food was provided that night the big busy kitchen was the most orderly shining spotless place imaginable but miss gussie fink was the neatest most immaculate object in all that great clean room there was that about her which suggested daisies in a field if you know what i mean This may have been due to the fact that her eyes were brown while her hair was gold, or it may have been something about the way her collars fitted high and tight and smooth, or the way her close white sleeves came down to meet her pretty hands, or the way her shining hair sprung from her forehead. Also the smooth creaminess of her skin may have had something to do with it, but privately I think it was due to the way she wore her shirtwaists. Miss Gussie Fink could wear a starched white shirtwaist under a close-fitting winter coat. Remove the coat, run her right forefinger along her collar's edge, and her left thumb along the back of her belt, and disclose to the admiring world a blouse as unwrinkled and unsullied as though it had just come from her own skilful hands at the ironing board. Miss Gussie Fink was so innately, flagrantly, beautifully clean-looking that well, there must be a stop to this description she was the kind of girl you'd like to see behind the counter of your favourite delicatessen knowing that you need not shudder as her fingers touch your sunday night supper slices of tongue and swiss cheese and ham no girl had ever dreamed of refusing to allow gussie to borrow her chamois for a second to-night miss fink had come in at ten p m which was just two hours later than usual she knew that she was to work until 6 a.m., which may have accounted for the fact that she displayed very little of what the fans call ginger, as she removed her hat and coat and hung them on the hook behind the desk. The prospect of that all-night, eight-hour stretch may have accounted for it, I say. But privately, an entree nue, it didn't. For here you must know of Heine. Heine, alas, now Henri. Until two weeks ago, Henri had been Heine, and Miss Fink had been Kid. When Henri had been Heine, he had worked in the kitchen at many things, but always with a loving eye on Miss Gussie Fink. Then one wild night there had been a waiter strike, wages or hours or tips or all three. In the confusion that followed, Heine had been pressed into service and a chopped coat. He had fitted into both with unbelievable nicety, proving that waiters are born, not made. Those little tricks and foibles that are characteristic of the genus waiter seemed to envelop him as though a fairy garment had fallen upon his shoulders. The folded napkin under his arm seemed to have been placed there by nature, so perfectly did it fit into place. The ghostly tread, the little whisking, skip the half-simper, the deferential bend that had in it at the same time something of insolence, all were there. The very, yes, miss, and very good, sir, rose automatically and correctly to his untrained lips. Cinderella, rising resplendent from her strewn hearth, was not more completely transformed than Heiny in his role of Henri. And with the transformation, Miss Gussie Fink had been left behind her desk disconsolate. Kitchens are as quick to seize upon these things and gossip about them as drawing-rooms are, and because Miss Gussie Fink had always worn a little air of aloofness to all except Heine. The kitchen was the more eager to make the most of its morsel. Each turned it over under his tongue. Tony, the crook, whom Miss Fink had scorned. Francois, the entree-cook, who often forgot he was married. Miss Sweeney, the bar-checker, who was jealous of Miss Fink's complexion. Miss Fink heard and said nothing. She only knew that there would be no dear figure waiting for her when the night's work was done. For two weeks now she had put on her hat and coat and gone her way at one o'clock alone. She discovered that to be taken home night after night under Heine's tender escort had taught her a ridiculous terror of the streets at night, now that she was without protection. Always the short walk from the car to the flat where Miss Fink lived with her mother had been a glorious, starlit, all-too-brief moment. Now it was an endless and terrifying trial— a thing of shivers and dread, fraught with horror of passing the alley just back of Cassidy's buffet. There had even been certain little half-serious, half-jesting talks about the future into which there had entered the subject of a little delicatessen and restaurant in a desirable neighbourhood, with Heine in the kitchen, and a certain blonde, neat, white, shirt-waisted person in charge of the desk and front shop. She and her mother had always gone through a little formula upon Miss Fink's return from work. They never used it now. "'Gussie's mother was a real mother, "'the kind that wakes up when you come home.' "'That you, Gussie?' "'Ma Fink would call from the bedroom "'at the sound of the key in the lock. "'It's me, Ma.' "'I need bring you home?' "'Sure.' "'Happily. "'There's a bit of sausage left and some pie if—' "'Oh, I ain't hungry. "'We stopped at Joey's downtown "'and had a cup of coffee and a ham on rye. "'Did you remember to put out the milk bottle?' For two weeks, there had been none of that. Gussie had learned to creep silently into bed, and her mother, being a mother, feigned sleep. To-night, at her desk, Miss Gussie Fink seemed a shade cooler, more self-contained and daisy-like than ever. From somewhere at the back of her head, she could see that Heine was avoiding her desk and was using the services of the checker at the other end of the room. And even as the poison of this was eating into her heart, she was tapping her forefinger imperatively on the desk before her and saying to Tony, the crook, Down on that table with that tray, Tony, flat. This may be a busy little New Year's Eve, but you can't come any of your sleight-of-hand stuff on me. For Tony had a little trick of concealing a dollar and a quarter sirloin by the simple method of slapping the platter close to the underside of his tray, and holding it there with long, lean fingers outspread, the entire bit of knavery being concealed in the folds of a flowing white napkin in the hand that balanced the tray. Into Tony's eyes there came a baleful gleam. His lean jaw jutted out threateningly. You're a real Weisenheimer kid, ain't you? he sneered. Never mind, I'll get you a recess. Some day, drawled Miss Fink, checking the steak. The house'll get wise to your stuff, and then you'll have to go back to the coal wagon. I know so much about you, it's beginning to make me uncomfortable. I hate to carry around a burden of crime. You're a sorehead because Heine turned you down, and now- Move on there, snapped Miss Fink, or I'll call the steward to settle you. Maybe he'd be interested to know that you've been counting in the date and your waiter's number and adding em at the bottom of your check. Tony, the crook, turned and skimmed away toward the dining room, but the taste of victory was bitter in miss fink's mouth midnight struck there came from the direction of the pink fountain room a clamour and din which penetrated the thickness of the padded doors that separated the dining-room from the kitchen beyond the sound rose and swelled above the blare of the orchestra chairs scraped on the marble floors as hundreds rose to their feet the sound of clinking-glasses became as the jangling of a hundred bells there came the sharp spat of hand clapping then cheers yells huzzas. Through the swinging doors at the end of the long passageway, Miss Fink could catch glimpses of dazzling colour, of shimmering gowns, of bare arms uplifted, of flowers and plumes and jewels with the rosy light of the famed pink fountain casting a gracious glow over all. Once she saw a tall young fellow throw his arm about the shoulder of a glorious creature at the next table, and though the door swung shut before she could see it, Miss Fink knew that he had kissed her there were no new year's greetings in the kitchen back of the pink fountain room it was the busiest moment in all that busy night the heat of the ovens was so intense that it could be felt as far as miss pink's remote corner the swinging doors between dining-room and kitchen were never still a steady stream of waiters made for the steam tables before which the white-clad chefs stood ladling carving basting serving gave their orders received them stopped at the checking desk and sped dining-roomward again "'Tony, the crook, was cursing at one of the little Polish vegetable girls "'who had not been quick enough about the garnishing of a salad, "'and she was saying over and over again in her thick tongue, "'Aw, shut up your mouth!' "'The thud-thud of Miss Fink's checking stamp kept time to flying footsteps, "'but even as her practised eye swept over the tray before her, "'she saw the steward direct Henri toward her desk, "'just as he was about to head in the direction of the minor checking desk. "'Beneath downcast lids she saw him coming.' "'There was about Henri to-night a certain radiance, "'a sort of electrical elasticity. "'So nimble, so tireless, so exuberant, was he? "'In the eyes of Miss Gussie Fink, "'he looked heartbreakingly handsome in his waiter's uniform, "'handsome, distinguished, remote, and infinitely desirable. "'And just behind him, revenge in his eye, came Tony. "'The flat surface of the desk received Henri's tray.' Miss Fink regarded it with a cold and businesslike stare. Henri whipped his napkin from under his left arm and began to remove covers dexterously. Off came the first silver-dome-shaped top. Guinea-hen, said Henri. I seen her looking at you when you served the little necks. Came from Tony as though continuing a conversation begun in some past moment of pause. And she's some lovely doll, believe me. Miss Fink scanned the guinea hen thoroughly, but with a detached air, and selected the proper stamp from the box at her elbow. Thump! On the broad pasteboard sheet before her appeared the figures one dollar seventy-five cents after Henri's number. "'Think so?' grinned Henri, and removed another cover. "'One candied sweets.' "'I bet some day we'll see you in the Sunday papers, Heinie. went on Tony. "'With a piece about handsome waiter running away with beautiful society, girl. Say, you're too perfect even for a waiter.' Thump! Thirty cents.' "'Quit your kiddin,' said the flattered Henri. "'One and I, French dressing. Thump!' "'Next!' said Miss Fink, dispassionately, yawned and smiled fleetingly at the entree cook, who wasn't looking her way. Then, as Tony slid his tray toward her, "'How's business, Tony? Hm? "'How many two-bit cigar bands? "'Have you slipped onto your own private collection of nickel straights "'and made a twenty-cent rake-off?' But there was a mist in the bright brown eyes as Tony the crook turned away with his tray. In spite of the satisfaction of having had the last word, Miss Fink knew in her heart that Tony had got her at recess, as he had said he would. Things were slowing up for Miss Fink. The stream of hurrying waiters was turned in the direction of the kitchen bar now. From now on the eating would be light and the drinking heavy. Miss Fink, with time hanging heavy, found herself blinking down at the figures stamped on the pasteboard sheet before her, and in spite of the blinking, two marks that never were intended for a checker's report splashed down just over the one dollar seventy five cents after Henri's number. A lovely doll! And she had gazed at Heine. Well, that was to be expected. No woman could gaze unmoved upon Heine. A lovely doll! hi miss fink it was the steward's voice we need you over in the bar to help miss sweeney check the drinks they're coming too swift for her eating will be light from now on just a little something salty now and then so miss fink dabbed covertly at her eyes and betook herself out of the atmosphere of roasting and broiling and frying and stewing away from the sight of great copper kettles and glowing coals and hissing pans into a little world fragrant with mint breathing of orange and lemon-peel perfumed with pineapple redolent of cinnamon and clove, reeking with things spiritous. Here the splutter of the broiler was replaced by the hiss of the siphon, and the pop-pop of corks, and the tinkle and clink of ice against glass. "'Hello, dearie,' cooed Miss Sweeney in greeting, staring hard at the suspicious redness around Miss Fink's eyelids. "'Ain't you sweet to come over here in the headache department and help me out?' "'Here's the wine-list. You probably need it. Say, who do you suppose invented New Year's Eve? They must have had imagination like a Greek busboy. I'm limp as a rag now, and it's only two-thirty. I've got a regular cramp in my wrist from checking quartz. Say, did you hear about Heine's crowd?' "'No,' said Miss Fink evenly, and began to study the first page of the wine-list under the heading Champagnes of Noted Vintages. "'Well!' went on Miss Sweeney's little thin, malicious voice. "'He's fell in soft. There's a table of three, and they're drinking 1874 Imperial Crown at twelve dollars per, like it was Waukesha Ale. And every time they finish a bottle, one of the guys pays for it, with a brand new ten and a brand new five, and tells Heine to keep the change. Can you beat it?' "'I hope,' said Miss Fink pleasantly, "'that the supply of 1874 will hold out till morning. I'd hate to see them have to come down to ten-dollar wine.' "'Here, you, Tony, come back here. "'I may be a new hand in this department, "'but I'm not so green that you can put a gold label "'over on me as a yellow label. "'Notice that I'm checking you another fifty cents.' "'Ain't he the grafter?' (laughs) laughed Miss Sweeney. "'She leaned toward Miss Fink and lowered her voice discreetly. "'Though I'll say this for him. "'If you let him get away with it now and then, "'he'll split even with you. Hmm? "'Oh, Wanda, don't get so high and mighty. "'The management expects it in this department. "'That's why they pay starvation wages.' An unusual note of colour crept into Miss Gussie Fink's smooth cheek. It deepened and glowed as Heine darted around the corner and up to the bar. There was about him an air of suppressed excitement. Suppressed, because Heine was too perfect a waiter to display emotion. "'Not another!' chanted the bartender's in chorus. "'Yes,' answered Henri solemnly, and waited while the wine-cellar was made to relinquish another rare jewel." oh you heiny! called miss sweeney tell us what she looks like if i had time i'd take a peek myself from what tony says she must look something like maxine elliot only brighter henri turned he saw miss fink a curious little expression came into his eyes a heiny look it might have been called as he regarded his erstwhile sweetheart's unruffled attire and clear skin and steady eye and glossy hair She was looking past him in that baffling, maddening way that angry women have. Some of Henri's poise seemed to desert him in that moment. He appeared a shade less debonair as he received the precious bottle from the wine man's hands. He made for Miss Fink's desk and stood watching her while she checked his order. At the door he turned and looked over his shoulder at Miss Sweeney. "'Sometime,' he said deliberately, "'when there's no ladies around, I'll tell you what I think she looks like.' and the little glow of color in Miss Gussie Fink's smooth cheek became a crimson flood that swept from brow to throat. "'Oh, well,' snickered Miss Sweeney to hide her own discomfiture. "'This is Little Hiney's first New Year's Eve in the dining-room. Honest, I believe he's shocked. He don't realize to celebrate New Year's Eve is like eating oranges. You gotta let go your dignity to really enjoy them. Three times more did Henri enter and demand a bottle of the famous vintage, and each time he seemed a shade less buoyant. His elation diminished as his tips grew greater until, as he drew up at the bar at six o'clock, he seemed wrapped in impenetrable gloom. "Them hogs sousing yet?" shrilled Miss Sweeney. She and Miss Fink had climbed down from their high stools and were preparing to leave. Henri nodded, drearily, and disappeared in the direction of the Pink Fountain room. Miss Fink walked back to her own desk in the corner near the dining-room door. She took her hat off the hook and stood regarding it thoughtfully. Then, with a little air of decision, she turned and walked swiftly down the passageway that separated dining-room from kitchen. Tilly, the scrub-woman, was down on her hands and knees in one corner of the passage. She was one of a small army of cleaners that had begun the work of clearing away the debris of the long night's revel. Miss Fink lifted her neat skirts high as she tiptoed through the little soapy pool that followed in the wake of Tilly, the scrub-woman. She opened the swinging doors, a cautious little crack, and peered in. What she saw was not pretty. If the words sordid and Bacchanalian had been part of Miss Fink's vocabulary, they would have risen to her lips then. The crowd had gone. The great room contained not more than half a dozen people— Confetti littered the floor. Here and there a napkin, crushed and bedraggled into an unrecognizable ball, lay under a table. From an overturned bottle the dregs were dripping drearily. The air was stale, stifling, poisonous. At a little table in the center of the room, Henri's three were still drinking. They were doing it in a dreadful and businesslike way. There were two men and one woman— The faces of all three were mahogany-coloured and expressionless. There was about them an awful sort of stillness. Something in the sight seemed to sicken Gussie Fink. It came to her that the wintry air outdoors must be gloriously sweet and cool and clean in contrast to this. She was about to turn away, with a last look at Heine yawning behind his hand, when suddenly the woman rose unsteadily to her feet, balancing herself with her fingertips on the table. She raised her head and stared across the room with dull, unseeing eyes and licked her lips with her tongue. Then she turned and walked half a dozen paces, screamed once with horrible shrillness, and crashed to the floor. She lay there in a still, crumpled heap, the folds of her exquisite gown rippling to meet a little stale pool of wine that had splashed from some broken glass. Then this happened three people ran toward the woman on the floor. And two people ran past her and out of the room. The two who ran away were the men with whom she had been drinking, and they were not seen again. The three who ran toward her were Henri, the waiter, Miss Gussie Fink, checker, and Tillie, the scrubwoman. Henri and Miss Fink reached her first. Tillie, the scrubwoman, was a close third. Miss Gussie Fink made as though to slip her arm under the poor bruised head, but Henri caught her wrist fiercely for a waiter and pulled her to her feet almost roughly. You leave her alone, kid he commanded miss gussie fink stared indignation choking her utterance and as she stared the fierce light in henri's eyes was replaced by the light of tenderness we'll tend to her said henri she ain't fit for you to touch i wouldn't let you soil your hands on such truck and while Gussie still stared, he grasped the unconscious woman by the shoulders, while another waiter grasped her ankles with Tilly the scrub woman, arranging her draperies, pityingly around her, and together they carried her out of the dining-room to a room beyond. Back in the kitchen, Miss Gussie Fink was preparing to don her hat. But she was experiencing some difficulty because of the way in which her fingers persisted in trembling. Her face was turned away from the swinging doors, but she knew when Henri came in. He stood just behind her, in silence. When she turned to face him, she found Henri looking at her, and as he looked, all the heine in him came to the surface and shone in his eyes. He looked long and silently at Miss Gussie Fink, at the sane, simple wholesomeness of her, at her clear brown eyes, at her white forehead from which the shining hair sprang away in such a delicate line at her immaculately white shirt-waist and her smooth, snug-fitting collar that came up to the lobes of her little pink ears, at her creamy skin, at her trim belt. He looked as one who would rest his eyes, eyes weary of gazing upon satins and jewels and rouge and carmine and white arms and bosoms. Gee, kid, you look good to me, he said. Do I? "'Heine?' whispered Miss Fink. "'Believe me,' replied Heine fervently. "'It was just a case of swelled head. Forget it, will you? Say, that gang in there tonight— Why, say, that gang—' "'I know,' interrupted Miss Fink. "'Going home?' asked Heine. "'Yes. "'Suppose we have a bite of something to eat first?' suggested Heine. Miss Fink glanced round the great deserted kitchen. As she gazed, a little expression of disgust wrinkled her pretty nose, the nose that, perforce, had sniffed the scent of so many rare and exquisite dishes. Sure, she assented joyously, but not here. Let's go around the corner to Joey's. I could get real chummy with a cup of good hot coffee and a ham on rye. He helped her on with her coat, and if his hands rested a moment on her shoulders, who was there to see it? A few sleepy, wan-eyed waiters, and Tilly, the scrubwoman, Together they started toward the door. Tilly, the scrubwoman, had worked her wet way out of the passage and into the kitchen proper. She and her pail blocked their way. She was sopping up a soapy pool with an all-encompassing grey scrub-rag. Heine and Gussie stopped a moment perforce to watch her. It was rather fascinating to see how that artful scrub-rag craftily closed in upon the soapy pool until it engulfed it. Tilly sat back on her knees to wring out the water-soaked rag. There was something pleasing in the sight. Tilly's blue calico was faded white in patches, and at the knees it was dark with soapy water. Her shoes were turned up ludicrously at the toes, as scrubwoman's shoes always are. Tilly's thin hair was wadded back into a moist knob at the back and skewered with a gray-black hairpin. From her parboiled, shriveled fingers to her ruddy, perspiring face there was nothing of grace or beauty about Tilly. And yet Heine found something pleasing there. He could not have told you why, so how can I? Unless to say that it was, perhaps, for much the same reason that we rejoice in the wholesome, safe, reassuring feel of the grey woolen blanket on our bed when we wake from a horrid dream. "'A happy new year to you,' said Heine gravely, and took his hand out of his pocket." Tilly's moist right hand closed over something. She smiled so that one saw all her broken black teeth. The same to you, said Tilly. The same to you. End of Story 5 The Kitchen Side of the Door